Welcome to the Career Guy Podcast, a chance to talk with different people and share stories about their careers and career paths, giving you an insightful look at different careers that do exist. Here's your host, Mickey Horvath. Today, I'm interviewing Shanil Ibrahim. Shanil is a partner and a life science healthcare consultant at Deloitte, Canada. He also holds a position as an assistant professor at McMaster University in the Department of Health Research Methods. In addition, he currently serves on several board of directors, which include Wellesley Residence Central and the Children's Treatment Network, both in the Toronto area. Chenille has several postdoctorates from McMaster and Stanford University. A doctor in epidemiology from McMaster University, a master's in medical science, and a master in bioethics, both from the University of Toronto, and a bachelor of science with honors in psychology from York University. This is a two-part interview with Chenille. This segment will focus on his early years. He talks about how he and his family immigrated from Saudi Arabia and how he had to climatize to the Canadian culture and some of the turmoil he faced. In doing so, he talks about how he started to discover his interests, which were math and science, and the avenues they could pursue with this is talked about. There's a good conversation on how he explored his options in picking and attending a university, which then leads to doing his undergrad in psychology and minoring in kinesiology, then leading to doing his master's in medical science and bioethics, all finally leading up to doing his doctorate in epidemiology, which is how this segment ends. This interview will cater to anyone interested in a career in health or medical science and research. Psychology and bioethics as a career path are discussed as well. How research is performed in clinical trials is also talked about. This is truly an eye-opening and informative interview that touches on sensitive topics such as bullying and how to overcome it. With that, this is very motivational and inspiring. With that, I would like to welcome Shanil. So this morning, I'd like to welcome Shanil Ibrahim. And Shanil has got quite the story to tell us. He's done a lot with his life. Well, first of all, I really want to thank him for the time this morning. Thank you, Mickey. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great. This is going to be a really good conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So just to start off with, I know... You live in Toronto right now, do you not? Just in the, well, let's call it the outskirts of Toronto, right at uh, Thornhill. Okay. But you did not grow up in Toronto. So maybe we could start off the story with how you grew up and your upbringing a little bit, if you don't mind. Happy to. So you're right. I did not grow up in Canada. I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia, and I moved at a pretty young age to Canada And interestingly enough, Mickey, my growing up in Saudi Arabia felt like a little bit of a blur. At times, it felt like my memory was pretty sparse, which sometimes surprises me as my memory tends to be quite strong. And I don't know if it's because I was quite young or because 
life was actually pretty mundane and I didn't know any better. And it's probably because it's a combination of a different factors, like it being a strict country, I was quite young, and things just started rolling into each other. Yeah, I think a lot of us can relate to that. And I think probably a combination of both. We're young, we don't know any better, we're just exploring life, and everything's just given to us. We don't have to worry about food or shelter or anything like that. So yeah, it's probably just mundane. But you, how old were you when you came to Canada? I was nine years old. Nine years old. So you're probably going to about grade three in elementary school. Is that right? I just finished grade five in Saudi Arabia and I was going to grade six in Canada. So you were a little bit more advanced then. If I remember everything correctly, nine years old, you should be about grade three or grade four. So am I right about that? Yeah, my parents put me in school about a year and a half early. So I tended to be younger than a lot of my friends. Okay. So you were obviously in more advanced grade and you were a little bit younger. So there's probably a bit of a generation gap as you were probably going through school. Am I reading that right? That definitely is right. And in Saudi Arabia, I probably didn't notice it as much because back there was pretty strict. You learn about eight subjects since you were in grade one, three of them were languages. And then you got exams since you were in grade one and you came home and you did homework until you went to bed and it's rinse, recycle, repeat. So when I did come to Canada, at least in terms of education, it was actually on par. And if anything, in some areas, it felt that I was more advanced. So acclimating into the educational environment was not too bad. So you made the transition fairly easily. Would that be a good assumption? For the education, but yeah. the well, social environment, far from it. At a pretty challenging time when I came from Saudi Arabia to Canada. So let's talk about that. What was the transition like for you? So you know how I was mentioning that life felt like a blur in Saudi Arabia? Well, suddenly my early childhood stopped being a blur when I moved to Canada because that's when I felt things became very eventful and unfortunately not in a positive way. So when I first came to Canada, I actually lived in Aurora as that's where my family had a few family friends. And I went to a school called Highview Public School, and this was in grade six. So all the kids there were generally nice, but one thing I noticed very quickly was everyone was white, all of them. I was the only non-white kid at that point. And it didn't bother me because I just thought I was in the midst of Canadians. And in my mind, Canadians were primarily white people. And nothing seemed odd. But the one thing that stuck out for me in Highview was that kids were telling me that I had a funny voice where I sounded like their grandpa, which I had no idea what it meant at the time, but they were referring to my accent. And I came from Saudi Arabia in an Anglo-Indian school, so I'm sure I had an accent, but did not know that I had one, nor did I know what the word accent was. But anyways, my life at Highview was actually pretty short. As a few months in, my parents moved to an apartment in North York, and that's when I really knew I had an accent and I was different. So when I moved to North York, I attended a junior high called Donview Public School. And the first thing I noticed was, hey, not everyone here is white. It was a mix of Indian, Chinese, Iranian, and white. So I thought I would have probably fit in. But very quickly, I realized I was an outsider. And I was kind of reminded of this every day that I was not born in Canada. Started getting picked on. And I say picked on to be nice, but was pretty badly bullied at that point in time. So I won't rehash everything during that time, but a few things that kind of come to mind is, you know, 
People telling me, you got to scrub the brown off your skin. I was told to use shampoo to clean my hair. I was told I smell like curry. I was body checked into lockers or punched and kicked in gym class. So a lot of different racial slurs, but suddenly life became eventful and maybe not just life, just every day became eventful. So the transition coming to Canada was actually quite hard on the first early years. Did this continue on as you were going through junior high and you went into high school? Good question. So as I started progressing from grade six to eight, I started acclimating and started navigating the environment. So there were certain kids that I started fitting in with. So suddenly it didn't feel so bad by the time I got to grade eight, but then my parents did move and uh, they moved to a house in Scarborough. And, uh, to be specific, in Malvern, which if you're unaware, is actually a pretty rough part of Scarborough where crime rates and gang violence are unfortunately a bit high. So hearing about stabbings and shootings were a common occurrence. So I went to Lester B. Pearson High School, and unfortunately, that was one of the lowest ranked schools at the time. And when I walked in there, I could tell it wasn't a great school with graffiti everywhere. So when I came to grade nine, I felt the bullying started again because now again, I'm new to an environment, but I didn't feel it was as intense, probably because I knew how to navigate and quote unquote, fit in faster with the right folks, the lessons that I learned from junior high. How did you navigate and how did you fit in? What kind of recipe did you use? I think it's hard to know what recipe that exactly I used, but it was the first time I felt like I had to fend for myself. It's not to say that my family wasn't there but they don't know what goes on in school. And it's hard to describe what you're going through because at that time you were a kid, you were 10 years old. Plus everyone was going through their own challenges at the time. So my father was acclimating to a work environment here that wasn't as spruced up as he thought it was going to be. My mom got into full-time career, which was very different because she came from a country that didn't allow her to work. My sisters were figuring out life as two teenage girls from a foreign country and dealing with other forms of bullying. So at the time I felt like my problems were small. So the way that I ended up dealing with it was really being perceptive of who I wanted to trust. I was always on guard generally, so I was aware of things can happen at any time, which can affect trust, but very quickly I understood who I can trust and who I can't. And I tended to keep a small group of very close friends. For example, my best friend from that time is still my best friend to this day. But there was a few things that I learned along the way, which actually helped me navigate during that time. And it still helps me navigate to this day where I was having to fend for myself meant that I could be self-sufficient. I became probably more studied, more perceptible of my environment, always aware of personalities in a room, how they interacted. And that carried on my life where I was able to read a room pretty quickly to understand how to navigate situations. I generally was also quite reflective of my actions in a general way because I knew my actions could impact other people. So there was different things that I did, but those are some of the few things that come to mind. Sounds like to me, you were, for lack of better words, maybe really well-rooted in yourself. You, you were comfortable with yourself and that sort of helped you get through all the rougher times. Would that be a good way to say that? That definitely would be because in my early years, Prior to being in Canada, I don't think I really understood myself really well. Not to say I really understood myself perfectly well at junior high, but I understood the different emotions I had, what impacted me, what was the emotions that other people started to feel. So just being a little bit more introspective, I do find 
helped me navigate situations better and also generally built a level of resilience in me that I felt I did carry on to adulthood. Sounds like another good word would be matured. It sounds like you really just matured really, really well, which has probably helped you out throughout your career, which is what we're going to get into within a few minutes. But moving forward, though, then you're going into high school. So how did you develop in high school and did you develop any interests? Good question. So high school felt like a story of two tales. The first tale or the first half was me trying to fit in, uh, probably trying to be as background of a character as I could be. I generally felt I was pretty nerdy. I had relatively high grades. But the second tale or the second half is where I started trying to fit in with some folks in the wrong crowd, baggy pants, gang pendants, grades started to drop, hanging out and up to no good at night. I won't get into too many details on it, but this is just how Pearson or Scarborough or Malvern just was. This was a school where seeing knives, machetes, hatchets, and even guns were not uncommon, unfortunately. And generally, which was a pretty consequential period in my life and shaping my lens and my view of the world and my character, I knew how it felt to want to fit in, even when it was with the wrong crowd. But at the end of high school, as I started understanding people and understanding the paths that they were going on in life, I also understood this is not the path I wanted to go down. And I wanted more in my life because I still started gravitating, even sometimes in secrecy, gravitating towards people who I admired who were doing really well in life, even though it was quote-unquote not cool. But I knew I wanted more in my life at that point in time. I'm glad you bring that up because in high school, it's a really confusing time for a lot of people, period. And you brought up something really interesting, peer pressure. You want it to be popular, you want it to be well-known, you want it to be liked, which, which we all do. So that's why you sort of gravitated towards maybe the wrong crowd. But at the same time, inside, you knew that you had other talents and you saw another vision for your life, which is why you started going, well, wait, I'm hanging out with the wrong people, but there's people I aspire to and... Why am I not gravitating towards the people I aspire to? Because they're going to shape my life more so. That's right. So with that, you obviously did move in that direction more so. So as you're coming out of high school, what's going through your head? What did you want to pursue? How did you pursue things? Yeah, it's a good question. So late in my high school, my best friend who was actually at a different school was asking me a lot of questions around what did I want to do after high school? So at the time, I was just starting to be into computers and technology, which was at an early stage at that point in time, but I didn't know what a career there meant. But he was talking to me a lot about sciences and healthcare and talking about the possibilities of being in respectful professions like a doctor, which is what he aspired to be in. He is one today and a very successful one as well. So I started looking into going into sciences and thought I could explore it. So in the latter stages of high school, I started taking much more sciences courses. So biology, chemistry, physics, with an aspiration that I wanted to go into healthcare, even though I did not know what that exactly meant. But I thought I'll take a plunge and kind of see what happens there. So as I was mentioning that high school was a story of two tales, the latter tale ended up moving in an upswing where my grades started to go back up primarily in sciences, due to the aspiration that I had. Did you find science just coming naturally to you? No, not at all. So I felt physics 
and math came naturally to me. And I think this has a lot to do with my upbringing in Saudi Arabia, where they did focus a lot on math. Biology just never clicked right away. I just felt it was foreign. I felt like I had to memorize concepts that didn't have as much applicability in the real world because biology wasn't around physiology or anatomy or things along those natures. It's going down to the molecule. So it just didn't click in. But I just thought it's work that I have to put in and one day that it will click in. So I had faith that it'll happen. I still felt that I was a a smart guy, but it didn't actually click in by any means. That's interesting you bring that up because you're obviously, well, I'm not giving away your career. We'll get into it, but you're obviously pursuing medicine and health and biology is a big part of it. So obviously you had to work at this. I did. And uh, I had a very tough time in biology at the start because just things just never clicked in early. And I just thought it was just novel concepts that I was learning. I was putting in a lot of work, but for some reason, it just wasn't natural. But the hope was that if I just kept in putting in the work, then one day that it will start to click in. So it's not like a lot of my peers who I felt just excelled in biology right off the bat. Okay. So you're finishing off high school. I mean, obviously you finished high school and you finished well. I'm just thinking that. Am I pretty accurate with that or? Yeah, I think I did well at the end where I did get into some universities. Okay, so coming out of high school, obviously, like most people that come out of high school or people that maybe even listen to this program, coming out of high school, they're thinking, well, right now we're recording this in December and yeah, maybe the odd person might be thinking, I'm graduating high school this, this spring or this summer. What do I do? So what's going through your mind as you're coming out of high school and what are you looking at doing and how do you decide? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I think about coming out of high school, to me, there was no option but to go into university or college right away and likely university, primarily because of the academic pressures that my family had. My dad was an engineer and he did his master's in engineering at a time when there wasn't many individuals who were doing master's. My sisters were in business and in accounting. And I just felt like that was the only option for me to pursue was university. And because I had some interest in sciences, I just took the plunge and thought, you know what, I'll do this and I'm just going to work at it. Even if I don't like it, just because of the mentality that you had as a first generation immigrant that you don't have to like the job that you do, but you just have to do it. So which university did you end up going to and what was that like? How did you even pick the university that you wanted to go to? Because you're living in Toronto where there's a good selection of universities to go to. I ended up going into U of T at Scarborough, and there was a couple of reasons for that. One of them was I thought this was one of the top institutions. Scarborough is where I lived, so I thought I could be very close to home. So that's where I went, and I decided to do a double major in biology and in psychology, which is something that I chose within the first year. But even though I chose U of T Scarborough, immediately I absolutely hated it. At that time, things have actually progressed quite a bit in the last 15 years, but it looked like a bunker back in the day. And it just didn't feel like a world-class university at that point in time. So the environment felt very depressing, very low light, just didn't feel like what I thought a world-class institution would start to look like. And even the teachers there were not the type of individuals that I thought were going to be inspirational. So just for one example, 
the first day of calculus, which was in my first semester when I was at U of T Scarborough, a professor mentioned to the whole class that this is a very hard class and only the top students excel or even stay in this class. So look to your left, look to your right, and one of you will not be there. And the person who will be there will wear this badge of honor. And so that rubbed me the wrong way. And I knew very quickly that this may not be a place that I'll stick around in. So then what did you do? Did you obviously move somewhere else or did you not? I did. So within one semester, so just halfway in the year, I started applying to leave U of T Scarborough. And I still wanted to be relatively close to home, but still move out of my parents' house and move into a residence because I felt that I needed to focus on my studies a little bit more and become a little bit more self-sufficient. So I transferred to York University and moved into residence there. And I still pursued psychology, but given the first year that I had at UFT Scarborough, I decided to do a minor in kinesiology as, as I loved everything about the human body and the anatomy and the physiology, but not the biological aspects. So I just felt it was more real and more applicable. So that's why I pursued that. That's interesting that you bring that up. Let's just explore that for a minute or two, because I've heard this so often, especially in the last 10 years, people that may want to pursue medicine, instead of taking microbiology or biology, which is actually microbiology, I've heard really strong suggestions to pursue kinesiology instead, where you really get to explore the human body and how the human body actually functions. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that you just don't realize when you're in high school. So for anyone listening out there, if you are thinking about choosing professions where you're dealing with the human body, whether it is a doctor or nurse, or even some elements of the human body, like being a dentist, for example, biology is one of the prerequisites because it builds on the foundational fundamentals, let's call it a cellular and at a molecular level. But anatomy, physiology, and courses that you typically do in kinesiology around the body and the movement of the body is just so much more applicable. And if you really want to know what it feels like to work in those professions, those become a better prerequisites. But I just never knew that in high school. And I had to learn through the courses that I did in biology and a chapter in biology, which was called anatomy and physiology, that I start to realize, well, that seems better. So that seems more relatable. And I started gravitating towards it, but it was something that I just found out as I did the courses and unfortunately not early enough. So that's interesting to bring that up because obviously when you were at U of T, you had to take those biology classes to figure that out. And when you moved to York, it sounded like a fresh start and you were a little bit more clear on what you wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I took advantage of that for us to start. So even the fact that I majored in psychology and did a minor in kinesiology was part of that fresh start. So one of the things that I loved was anything with the human mind. It's something that I gravitated towards in a young age. I just did not know there was a profession related to it. So I learned that through U of T, but then I decided to double down at York. Same with kinesiology. I loved everything about the human body and the human anatomy but I felt that I could just do this as a minor, especially if you wanted to go into professions in healthcare. You don't need a major in a specific type of healthcare field for a lot of postgrad careers. 
And uh, that allowed me to be a little bit more flexible. That's interesting you bring it up. We'll get into that in a minute. I just want you to elaborate, if you could, please, on your psychology degree. What's that like? What kind of courses are you taking? And just give us a feel for what that's like if anybody's interested in pursuing that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most fascinating courses that you take in psychology is actually Introduction to Psychology. And I've had conversations with many of my peers across different universities. And Intro to Psychology is very similar across where you learn everything around development psychology, around how psychology develops when you're a child. You learn about drugs and behavior, around how drugs actually impact your psychological well-being. You learn around memory, cognitive performance, around mood disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. You understand everything around mental health, both from a child all the way into adulthood. And what you think is normal, there's a wide spectrum around that. And it at least provides a different perspective that there's a different world out there. And at the same time, you also learn about childhood disorders that happen early on, like ADHD, autism which gives you a new perspective around different things, different individuals tend to deal with at a very young age as well. So it opens up your mind in terms of what the spectrum of disorders start to look like from a mental health perspective. Okay. A twofold question. You're graduating now. You've done your undergraduate. You've got a major in psychology and your minor in kinesiology. With that said, I would like to ask what you did afterwards, but before we even get into that, somebody again who's listening and is interested in psychology, for example, or it's specifically talking about psychology, what can you do with that after you graduate with an undergraduate? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's two clear fields that you can go into with psychology. There's something that they share with you pretty early on. One is being a clinical psychologist. So this is typically a path that you pursue through a PhD. And the second one is a psychiatrist, which you do with an MD. You have to go into medical school to be a psychiatrist. One of the big differences between both, and I'm going to overly simplify this, is psychology focuses more on therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, is a classic form of therapy, whereas psychiatrists focus more on prescriptions and drugs. So they're the only ones able to prescribe medications for a lot of psychological disorders. So those are the two classical fields that you can go into with psychology, but there's other things you can do. You can be a professor in psychology and teach psychology. You can go into workplaces where you have a degree in organizational psychology in terms of the psychology of a workplace and how you actually develop a better workplace through the interactions of human behavior. You can end up going to an insurance company and doing psychological assessments for people who want to go on disability benefits and are suffering from mental health disorders. And there's a wide variety of areas that you can go into in psychology. And I'm actually kind of living through this because my wife, she's a clinical psychologist right now, and she has worked in private clinics, at hospitals, at insurance companies, at workplace compensation boards and provides a wide variety of experiences. I'm just going to interject this. When we talk about healthcare, I mean, one of the biggest things that's been overlooked throughout the years, and it's really become more of a focal point, especially with COVID, we're just coming out, well, we've been out of COVID for about a year now, but it's the whole mental health aspect of things. So I think with psychology, it's a big demanding field. Absolutely. Like when you think of a psychologist, psychotherapist, a social worker, 
educational psychologists and HR managers, typically they have some sort of degree in psychology, whether it's from an undergrad, master's, or a PhD. So it provides you a, a wide variety of fields, something that even as I was doing a psychology degree, I probably did appreciate the breadth of different careers that you could have by being a psychologist. Fair enough. But this is just one podcast about your career. And I think that'll be a different podcast altogether, just talking <laughs> about a psychology degree altogether. So, right. but you decided, obviously you're coming out of York University, you graduated with a psychology degree and a minor in kinesiology. So what did you specifically pursue or do? What was going through your mind when you graduated? So great question. So the whole time as I was doing a degree, uh, I thought I was going to be a doctor because why else would you want to go into healthcare? That's what I thought back in the day. And I didn't know all the options that was out there. But in York, the most impactful class I had that at the time, and I don't believe the course still exists to this day, but it was a course in bioethics. It was with a professor named Carrie Bowman, who was and actually still is a bioethicist at Mount Sinai Hospital. So this course focused on what ethical issues mean within healthcare from how do not resuscitate disorders work, what malpractice means, what euthanasia means. And these are some critical issues that we deal with in healthcare on a daily basis for anyone who is living and breathing in this profession today. So I decided at that time, maybe I could be a bioethicist, but I did not know myself. So I spoke to Kerry Bowman and uh, became his bioethics associate at Mount Sinai. And I was just really fascinated by the field and the ability to be a quote-unquote conduit between the clinicians and the family, which I felt was quite rewarding. And I felt like I was providing value in an area that was really needed. Because Mickey, if you really think about it, how often do you go into hospitals where family feel they're inequipped to deal with the complexity of medical decisions? especially when it comes to areas like death and dying, which is obviously a high-pressure type of situation. How often do you feel families are given an equal party in the decision-making of their loved ones? How often do you feel that families have a voice in the decision? So are there factors like their culture or religion that's taken into account by clinical teams? And this is where bioethicists play a role to be there on behalf of families and unravel those type of thorny issues. And to me, that was making a difference. So at that point in time, I felt like I had enough data points to pursue a master's in bioethics coupled with a master's in medical science at UFT, but this time in the downtown campus. It's interesting you point that out. Well, first of all, a couple of things. I mean, it's um, something our Western world doesn't deal very, very well with is the whole issue of death and whatnot. And I've talked to other people about this. And my wife is a nurse as well, and she deals with the elderly population. So that's interesting that you bring that up. It's a field that we sort of just push aside. So you obviously brought some sensitive issues up. And uh, with that said, when you worked as an associate with Terry Bowman, so as an associate, what are you doing and how long did you work for him as an associate bef before you finally made up your mind that this is what you want to pursue? So I was doing it while I was still in undergrad. So I was doing it over the course of, I felt like a year and a half, two years potentially. And uh, we were doing a lot of different things. So there was at least three things that really kind of stood out in my mind. First one was that I tended to shadow him at Mount Sinai, where he was actually having um, conversations related to ethical issues with both the family and the clinicians. 
So a lot of times I was there side by side with him, shadowing him and writing briefs, what we called ethical briefs at that point in time. The second one was we were doing a, a lot of research where there was research actually being done that needed an ethical lens to it. So a lot of times the consultation would go to Kerry Bowman and his bioethics department. So a lot of times we were actually doing the assessment of the ethical issues on behalf of the board. And then the third one was we were actually doing actual research in bioethics. And a great example of it was we launched a series of different research topics in ethical issues in death and dying across different cultures. So in Sikhism, in the Eastern Asian cultures, in African cultures, just in terms of how they perceive death and dying and the importance of actually bringing culture and religion into the clinical context as well. And we published a lot of those papers and the whole part of our role in the bioethics department was translating those pieces into the real world to clinicians to help them understand what these issues were and what it means in terms of daily decision making. So it sounds like you really got your feet wet before you went into your master's. So you knew when you went back to do your master's degree in bioethics and medical science, you were well-versed and you understood what you were getting yourself into. I did. I felt that it was one of the first times that I felt that as I was pursuing a degree, I knew the world that I was getting into. And I was excited by that because I felt like I had a little bit of a leg up when I was going into the master's, having lived a real experience within a hospital. So that would be good advice for anybody before they want to pursue a master's in anything is get a bit of experience, whether it's working as an associate in your case, or maybe just working in the field or whatnot. It sort of solidifies in your head going, yeah, this is really what I really want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely urge folks to get experience. So when I started as an associate, first I took it out as a volunteer position and eventually through grants, I ended up getting paid, but I didn't really care if I was getting paid or not. For me, if that was the only way that I could get experience in the real world, I was just going to take it. So especially nowadays when it's very difficult to get paid jobs while you're an undergrad in hospitals or just any professional sort of institutions, people are willing to take chances on volunteers. And it means that you would have to devote a little bit of your time. But in return, the experience that you gain gives you a major advantage in one, understanding the world that you're going to actually navigate in the future. And two, it allows others to understand how you can actually contribute to their institution and they're more willing to take chances on you. Okay, well, thanks for that explanation. I think that really clarifies that up on volunteer work and getting your feet sort of wet or getting a bit of experience. It's a win-win situation. First of all, it clears it in your own head, whether you really want to do this or not, because from school to the real world or really working in it, there's a differentiation between the two. And when you work with somebody, they can see, okay, well, this person's really interested. Maybe I will start paying them now. And you definitely cleared that up. But moving ahead now, so you're going back to where you started, University of Toronto. That's right. So obviously you've got a different perspective on things. So it must be a better environment for you this time. It was totally different experience than U of T Scarborough. And I know they are part of the same institution and in different campuses, but it just felt very different. And maybe it is 
because I was in my master's as well and I was a little bit more mature, but the lifestyle, the environment was extremely refreshing. And it also helped that I didn't just do my master's solely within UFT, but I was doing my thesis work at the hospital for sick children, sick kids, which gave it a little bit of an oomph knowing that I was in probably one of the most world-renowned hospital institutions in the world. And every day that I felt that I was doing my thesis work, I really did feel that. How long were you there? How long did this take? Two years. Two years. There was a two years. So it was a set program with courses and a thesis afterwards. Can you just describe that to us? Yeah. So the way that it worked was it was a dual master's where I was doing it with the Institute for Medical Science. And I was also doing it with the Joint Center for Bioethics. So I would get a medical science and a bioethics degree in my master's. And it was a set of courses through the medical science department and also set courses through the bioethics department. And there was different ways that I could have actually done my thesis. I could be doing two different theses where one is related to more medical science and one related to bioethics, or I could do a combined where I could bring the ethical issues and the medical science issues all into one. And I chose a ladder where I decided to do a combination to do my thesis in applicants. So in a quick minute synopsis, you sort of hinting about what your thesis was, but would you want to get into it a little bit more, you know, a little bit more detail? Yeah. So at SickKids, uh, I worked in the critical care unit where I worked very closely with the clinical epidemiologist. I was researching the neurocognitive outcomes of children resuscitated in the ICU after a cardiac arrest. So half of these children were less than one years old. And it was honestly the, the most rewarding and heartbreaking things I had to deal with because one third of the children died within the two years that I was following up with them during the research. And we had quite difficult conversations with the parents around that time. But as tough as it was, I felt that being at Sick Kids allowed me to do research in a world-class institution that helped me understand how I could actually contribute. And I started to feel like research was almost as equally as my calling because it allowed me to challenge myself continuously, hone in on my problem-solving skills, and allowed me to build an independent level of thinking where I felt that I could advance different fields within healthcare. And I thought, you know, research might be something that I would want to start pursuing as well. So when you graduated, somebody who graduates with a master's degree in bioethics in a combination with, with health science, in your case, what would they end up doing at the end of the day? There's a multitude of different careers. So one of the classic ones when you end up graduating with something like that is that you continue to pursue an academia. So your final calling would be a faculty member or a professor in any of the institutions. So that's a classic one. The second one, if you're pursuing any sort of degree in bioethics, you would end up becoming a bioethicist, either a clinical bioethicist in a hospital, or you may be a research ethicist where you would be working with research teams around the ethical issues in their research. And then the third one, which is a more, I would say, general category is research. And that could be research within an academic center, within a hospital, within a private institution. And that could be just based on your medical science degree. So generally research in healthcare. 
Okay. And in your case, particularly, what avenue did you end up pursuing? So one avenue I did not pursue was bioethics, because even though I loved every aspect of being a bioethicist, I felt that I could see what every day would start to look like for the next 30, 40 years. And I was very passionate about it, but it's not where I felt that my career was going to go. And having dabbled in research, especially through sick kids, I thought continuing in research makes a lot of sense to me because there's so many different avenues I can go into and there's multitudes of different um, research careers that you can end up having. But before I decide to do any sort of PhD or anything along those lines, I thought it may be best to work as a researcher or a research associate at a hospital and see what a career in research would start to look like in healthcare. And that's when I decided to join the mood disorders unit at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is CAMH for short, where I was coordinating clinical trials for depression, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorders. And this is where I was able to do research and work directly with patients suffering from the mental health conditions, doing assessments and enrolling them into trials where they get access to new and innovative treatments. First of all, how long were you in that position? I was in that position for two years. For two years. So give us an idea of what a position like that looks like. What are your daily activities, but also on a yearly basis? What kind of things are you trying to do? And how do you go about your projects and whatnot? Yeah, great question. So in my position, because I was coordinating clinical trials for the different diseases like bipolar disorder, depression, and schizophrenia, the end goal of these clinical trials is to determine if these treatments are equally or more effective than the standard therapy that's out there right now. So a big part of me is trying to figure out how do we advance different therapies that the psychiatrists or clinicians end up prescribing to these patients so they continue to get better treatment regimens to manage their disease. And the day-to-day, what it starts to look like is, one, recruiting patients who are eligible for these trials. So we do have strict eligibility criteria in terms of what type of bipolar disorder we are looking at, what type of age groups we're starting to look like, so that we could keep it very rigorous to see if this therapy is working on these patients because of these therapies or is it due to other factors. And ultimately, when I recruit patients into the clinical trials, a big part of it is doing assessments, providing the treatment regimen, and then following them up for whatever the protocol is for the clinical trial. So sometimes it is six months, one year, two years down the road where we continue to see if they're actually getting better as a result of the treatment. Sounds like to me, it's a position where you just not only need the medical and the science background, but you're also a real true PR person as well. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to recruiting these patients. So you need to start to work with different hospitals, different clinicians for them to want to advocate their patients to be part of this clinical trial. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges doing clinical trials is getting enough patients to be part of those trials because patients are not just going to know about these trials out of nowhere. They need to actually get it from the right channels, whether it is the doctor's offices, whether it's online, whatever way is possible. So it is a little bit of a PR 
maybe not PR, but some way for us to actually get the word out there that these trials do exist and they can actually advance. I'm just curious. I'm going to segue just a little bit because I think anybody who's interested in this field might want to hear this. So you explained how research is done and that's really good. And, but as far as recruiting patients, do you feel hesitation or nervousness from people? Is that normal? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, Especially when it's very new and innovative treatments. So there's two classes of treatments. And I'm again, overly simplifying this. One is brand new innovative treatments that are more experimental in nature. So these are not in the market and they're tested for the first time. Yes, they've gone through previous trials to assess the safety, but it's ultimately, it's not in the market. So physicians may have never heard of it. So patients are taking it for the first time. And the typical patients that end up taking it are the ones who have gone through different therapies and has failed. So they're willing to try a quote-unquote new medication. And then the second class of treatments are things that do exist, but it's being now tested for a different sort of disease type. Like a great example is a medication called Seroquel. Anyone with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia would have taken Seroquel for their diseases. But Seroquel can also be used for depression at a lower dose. So what we do in clinical trials is saying, well, they're already approved for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but we're going to do these trials for depression specifically and get those patients and provide a lower dosage and see if it also helps alleviate depression. And so that's a second class of treatments. And in those cases, sometimes you get hesitation because they may say, well, I don't know how a drug that is used for schizophrenia and bipolar is going to be be able to help me in my disease. And worse, what if it gives me bipolar and schizophrenia, which it never does, but that's the habitation that they have. Or they end up saying, you know what, I'm willing to try it because the other classes of depression medications don't work. So I'm going to do anything I can to help take a therapy or a regimen that I could get better. It sounds like it would have been a very interesting position. Again, you're mixing the science together with the people skills, like I said, the PR. You're looking at new ways of doing things, but you're also encompassing the old ways of doing things. It, you must have had a lot of controversy as well. I'm just curious. I just want to elaborate on this, if you don't mind, just for another minute. With the controversy, we talk about healthcare. It's just full of controversy. I mean, in a position like that, how do you deal with something like that? Some of the controversies take different forms and different shapes. So... One of the classic ones we hear in clinical trials is, who is it funded by? So even if it's an institution like CAMH that is doing the clinical trial, sometimes the sponsorship or the funds come from a pharmaceutical company, and typically the pharmaceutical company that provides the therapy. But they're providing the funds to the institution and don't play any role in the execution of the trial. But the reason that they are doing it this way is because they can get an independent perspective. But to the public, when they see that it's actually sponsored or funded by a pharmaceutical company, they tend to undermine the results, even if they were not involved in the execution or played any sort of role to bias the results. So that's one controversy that we deal with. The second is sometimes there are side effects of these medications and trials. So a lot of times there's scrutiny in terms of was there proper safety protocols put in place to make sure that these side effects don't cause any harm to the patient. 
Now, typically, there's so much safety protocols that's injected into the clinical trials. We ensure that the safety issues are limited and not really much more than what you would expect from a typical drug. But again, things happen. And we do everything in our power in terms of our clinical trial protocols to make sure there aren't any challenges associated with that. And those tend to be some of the big controversies that happen in the field. Thanks for that explanation. And the reason I asked that is just, again, somebody who may be interested in pursuing something like this and how would they deal with these delicate issues? But spinning back to your career, going back to your career now, you said you did this for two years. So what happens at the end of the two years? So at the end of the two years, I felt that I had enough data points by doing clinical research that I wanted to pursue a PhD. And and everything that I was doing was clinical-based research, which was using epidemiological methods. So a lot of data to be able to understand what's effective and what's not. And I decided to pursue a PhD in clinical epidemiology. And where did you pursue this? That's a great question, Mickey. So typically the way I did my undergrad and even when I did my master's, I felt that I was applying to multiple places and hopefully I get my top choice. But PhD was going to be different. I felt I'm not just going to apply for multiple programs and just get in wherever I can. If I was going to do a PhD, I wanted to work in the most reputable program, and I also wanted to work with someone who was at the top of the field and at the forefront. And that was clinical epidemiology at McMaster, which is where clinical epidemiology was founded. And this was going to be with Gordon Guyad, who was a man who coined evidence-based medicine and was one of the most prolific researchers and is one of the most prolific researchers as well. And that's what I wanted to pursue. I'm glad you brought that up based on my experience, because I used to work at the University of Calgary in geoscience. And a lot of people don't understand when they complete a master's degree and they jump into a PhD, that a PhD is a massive jump. There's a big difference between a master's degree and a PhD. It's, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more detailed. And it's going to chew up a big part of your life, depending on how long you live. But it's going to chew up a lot more time than a master's degree. And... I like the way you pointed that out. And that's, I think that's a real lesson here. And I hope that people that are listening are going to pick up on this is when you're applying for a PhD program is you need to be more so in the driver's seat of picking the university and the supervisor that you want to work with opposed to when you're doing an undergraduate, even a master's where you're kind of just randomly shooting out applications and saying, I hope I get accepted into this institution. You are more in the driver's seat. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, that was a big learning lesson as a result of my experiences where previously there was a lot of unknowns where I didn't know what it was going to be like to open up different doors. And so I applied in multiple places and hoped for the best. I had a lot of experiences under my belt and I knew that's the type of work that I wanted to do. And I believe I only applied to one place because if I did not get in, then I would have to reevaluate my options as opposed to spraying it in multiple places and it would have led me down different paths. And I just did not want that to happen. I would really like to thank Shanil for this part of the interview. Just to recap some of the main points. He talked about coming to Canada and how he adjusted to the climate. In doing so, he talked about the casting he faced 
and how he overcame that. He talked about exploring his interest and discovering his weakness in biology and his strength in math and physics, and how he worked on both. He talks about coming out of high school, and how he explored his interest by asking a lot of questions about himself, and what interested him and what did not. And whom he looked up to was very important to him as well. He did allude to role models. Not to mention, he talks about his family and friends, and how they had an influence on his decisions as well. He also alludes to the fact that he was a first-generation immigrant with that mentality that really helped him as well. All of these contributed to him, in his mind, determining the kind of career path that he wanted to have. He talks about his early experiences in university and how he changed his major and university as well, going to York at the end. There was a good conversation on kinesiology and why someone with an interest in medicine or health sciences may want to take this avenue as an undergrad. There was a good conversation pertaining to careers in psychology, bioethics, medicine, and research. He also points out that he did some work as an assistant before and during his master's degrees, which led him to better understand himself and what he wanted to pursue. His advice gets him experience. Even if it is volunteering, it can really help you in the long run. This segment of the interview ends with some really good advice on applying to grad school, particularly a PhD program. As Shanil describes, why he picked McMaster for doing his doctorate in epidemiology. Please listen to the next episode where Chenille elaborates on this experience and much, much more.